0: inerrancy in many regards is uh, the development of a new orthodoxy a, a new belief um nearly 1600 years after the apostle and Nicene creed it's, it's only a 100 year old theological concept right. um h- how confident do you have to be in your innovative belief system to think you've cracked the code on what this book is and what it's supposed to be for us
1: It's a great question I know I keep saying I have a great question, but you keep asking great questions,
0: so I. Hey, it hey, it's what I get paid the big bucks to do when I have big time authors on this podcast. So you keep saying it; it'll keep making me feel better. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout-out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Zach Hunt. He is a writer with work featured in Relevant Magazine, Christianity Today, Huffington Post, Red Letter, Christians, among many others. He's the author of Unraptured, How End of Time's Theology Gets It Wrong, and a new book, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Zach now joins the rare 3 for club of the CBF mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, so Zach, you are welcome, and thank you for rejoining the conversation.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Um, can I get one of those robes like they have on Saturday Night Live for the Five Timers Club?
0: Yeah, well, actually, uh, you actually have to be on four times uh, for oh. the robe. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: it's but, aspirational, then.
0: Yeah, it's good company, though. I mean, you're talking about folks like Brian McLaren's been on. Uh, I'm going to forget all the others that have been on for the fourth. you know, but uh, nice. you're, you're you're heading in the right direction. I think it's I think it's once a year, once every other year, we have you on. So you're you're in a good boat. I'm I can't wait.
1: I feel <laughs> Well,
0: uh, you know, anything to report in life uh since we had last had you on in uh 2021?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Um there was a, a pandemic. Um I don't know <laughs> if, if you recall, it didn't get a lot of press. Um yeah, no, my kids are just getting older and growing way too fast and getting just way too older, way too fast. <laughs>
0: Uh so you know speak of pandemic uh this is not a a shameless plug but yesterday was was my birthday we're recording this on oh, April the 13th you? for uh for all those that missed the the birthday shout out yesterday um but you know i i get this snapshot of like things that happened on your birthday and on my birthday uh the polio vaccine was widely accepted and distributed and i thought to myself my 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 how times have changed
1: <laughs> just a little bit
0: yeah yeah um so I really do want to jump into the book because there's so much uh, to unpack here. This this new book, God Breathe, this book takes a look at what it really means for the Bible to be divinely inspired. Uh, you wrote, when we treat the Bible and God as interchangeable, something else happens, often without even realizing it because the Bible doesn't exist on its own and because it was written by people in a culture and time far removed from our own it requires interpretation. Um, we're we're going to come back to a, a few pieces of this statement here in just a few moments. But first, um, you've written a book about rapture. Uh, why now a book about the Bible?
1: That's a great question. I think for me, they go hand in hand. If they're you know maybe a little bit backwards, like maybe I should have written this one and then the start with the Bible and then end with the end times. Um, but you know, for me, they're they're one in the same in the sense that the what I'm trying to accomplish is is to get people to step back and rethink how we approach the Bible, um, because I think you know, especially those of us that that grew up in the church, really, regardless of tradition, whether it's evangelical or you know some high church tradition, you know, if we grew up going to Sunday school every Sunday morning, you know, we we kind of. I think assume that we're experts on the text because we're so familiar with it, you know, because it's like a family member, you know, for most of us, you know, and and we know our uncles and our aunts right. and our brothers and sisters, you know, and we can speak authoritatively about that, and we have the same sort of familiarity with scripture, and and so we we bring a lot of assumptions to the, to the text um, about what a passage has to mean or what it definitely means because that's what we were always taught, you know, that it means, and so in Unraptured, you know, it, it was about you know reassessing. Um, you know, for me personally, things that I always assumed were true about the book of Revelation and, and times and Jesus's return and the rapture and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and with God Breathe, you know, I'm trying to bring that same sort of, you know, ability to admit we were wrong approach uh, to the Bible in general, you know, because I know for me, I I have lots of assumptions, you know, that that I had to wrestle with as I grew up and stepped back and matured and, you know, began to see the world in a different way at 40 than I did at, you know, 17. Um, and so for me, they're, they're connected because it's all about uh, self-awareness is, is not really the right word, but, you know, when I was at, at Yale and training in the history, uh, Christian history department, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about was like, you know, there's no such thing as, as objective history. You know, we, we like to think of history as this, you know, objective collection of facts, but that's not really what it is because, you know, all of us come to, you know, our research um, or our faith, you know, with with personal biases, you know, personal context, personal, you know, influences and things like that, that, that shape um, our work and that shape our faith and shape, you know, just who we are. And that's okay. You know, the problem, you know, isn't that, we have in you know in uh, personal biases or personal um, you know influences or contexts that we're working on and that come to bear on our work. Um, the problem is when we pretend that we don't. When we are just when we convince ourselves and try to convince others that we're doing you know history objectively or in this case that we're just saying what the Bible says because the Bible is clear um, as if we're just this uh, you know empty conduit through which God speaks. And so that, you know, leads to all sorts of, you know, problems and damage and destruction when we, you know, essentially position ourselves as the mouth of God. And so what I really hope, you know, comes out of really unraptured too, but, you know, God breathed in particular, is twofold. One, a challenge, you know, for folks like me, you know, who have been saturated with scripture our entire lives, you know, is to step back with, you know, some humility and say, you know, maybe I don't actually have this thing figured out that, you know, maybe, you know, I don't. Have a command of biblical languages, or maybe I, I don't quite understand ancient Near East, uh, you know, history um, the way that that I should to understand some of this stuff. Um, and you know, a lot of that requires a lot of work. So what what I'm really trying to get at with this book um, is, is not try to get people to, you know, sign up for seminary or, or get a PhD, but but to really take stock of their own faith and their own assumptions and their own beliefs. Um, so that they can look at scripture with new wise. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that is an act of, of, of humility that we have to go through. But for a lot of us, it's, it's more like needing permission. Um, to read the book in, in new and fresh ways, needing permission to ask questions of Scripture, to wrestle with Scripture, to push back with to, against Scripture, to even disagree with Scripture, um, and to do so knowing that you join a long line of of men and women um, who have been doing that for for two thousand years.
0: There's portions of your answer there that I definitely want to come back to and unpack a bit more, um, but. Let's get to a few fundamental terms used in this book and kind of help us um, f- frame them as far as you've used them um, within the book. That helps also help frame our our conversations today. So, um, not what you mean in this new way of thinking about God breathe, but what, what do people typically think about when when they hear that term God breathe?
1: That's a great question. Um, they, they, we. I think maybe is is the right way because it's such a weird, you know, unique word. Um, It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, um, you know, and obviously not in the Old Testament since the Hebrew Bible was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. But we come along, we come, I know words, I I can say words. Um, You know, we find it in Paul's letter to Timothy, and it just kind of pops out of nowhere that all scripture is God-breathed. And, you know, the way we've been conditioned to read that term, you know, in the most basic sense is inspiration. You know, there's not really any Debate that the idea of, of scripture being God breathed means in some sense um, that it's inspired, you know, whether you're liberal or um, you're super conservative or fundamentalist, you know, everybody can kind of agree on that. The question is, you know, what does that mean? You know, what does that actually look like? You know, and that's where, you know, the rubber meets the road and people start dividing pretty quickly. Um, you know, for me growing up, God breathed um, essentially meant God dictated, you know, that that God Either audibly, you know, uh, like we're having a conversation now, told the writers of the Gospels or the Hebrew Bible or, or Paul um, exactly what to write, or God did something internally. Maybe God spoke to them, like our conscious, you know, conscience, you know, sometimes speaks to us, uh, or God did some other sort of uh, puppeteering to control what the writers wrote. But for me, growing up, you know, in a conservative evangelical background, the idea that God um, breathed scriptures into existence meant that God um, was essentially a puppet master that god was at the very least like the very literal author um you know of scripture and controlled everything um, from the words and ideas to the punctuation that we added you know a thousand years later and so what i'm trying to achieve in this book is to step back and say well is that really you know what that means is that really not a question of of inspiration but what does it really mean that god was involved in this process and what does the process you know, look like at all. And so I, I come at it from my own biblical theology training, particularly in uh, biblical exegesis, which is, you know, always as, as exciting as it sounds. Um, my first class in college was biblical exegesis at 730 in the morning, and I'm still processing the trauma of that hour and that class. Um, but one of the things that I, I took from that was the importance of context for understanding scripture. And so, you know, we think of context in the immediate sense of, okay, well, what is in this verse or what are in the adjacent verses that will help us, you know, unpack this, the meaning or in this case, this particular word or this image of God breathe. Um, but a lot, sometimes we need to step further back, you know, and, you know, that might mean further back in the particular letter or gospel. Um, or even further back into just the the broader story of the people of God, and that's what I think we have to do with the idea of God breathe. Um, And it's not to proof text one verse with another, but to really try to capture this image. I think we need to situate it in the broader story of God, because that's what the Bible is. You know, it's it's not a book. Um, it's it's not even really just a collection of books, because rather than just a library, you know, it, it's interconnected. You know, it's intentional. It's it's a anthology a collection you know that's been brought together for a very specific reason and that's to tell the story of the people god and god's relationship and so when we situate it in that context then we can begin to look around and say well okay this word doesn't appear anywhere else in scripture but does this image does god breathe anything else into existence and god does on page 1 when god takes uh, the dirt or dust of the ground and breathes humanity adam um, into it and so that for me unpacks all sorts of uh avenues of inquiry and ideas. Um, if if we are God breathed and scripture is God breathed, then maybe God breathed isn't this act of perfection that we always assumed that it was. And if we are God breathed like scripture is God-breathed, then maybe we play a bigger role um in telling the story of God than than most of us assume.
0: Hmm. One more kind of um collection of words to kind of define for our audience as far as understanding traditionally what they've meant, um, because it's, it's critical to the book and our conversation is, um, inerrancy and infallibility. Uh, Obviously we could do a whole podcast on that, but kind of briefly kind of define for us how how you kind of use those terms in, in, in the book.
1: Great. Yeah. Those are certainly loaded terms, you know, for me personally, um, you know, they're at least the way they're used colloquially, um, you know, there's a fundamental connection, you know, between the two. So, inerrancy, you know, is going to look at the Bible and say, uh, to one extent or another, um, which doesn't make sense when I say this, but that the Bible, you know, is perfect um, in every conceivable way. Now, for some people, you know, that takes uh, the meaning of that is is exactly what it sounds, and so the Bible is perfect in the way it describes science um, and history. So, this would be someone like a Ken Ham, you know, the Creation Museum. So. Kim Han reads the Bible and takes most of it literally, even when it, you know, um, doesn't need to be taken literally and says, no, the Bible you know, accurately describes history and accurately describes science and accurately describes anything that it, it discusses. Um, now, you'll have some folks who will take a slightly different approach to that and say, well, you know, the Bible um, is inerrant, um, like my denomination says the Bible is perfect in the way that it reveals salvation. Um, and that that's a pretty agreed upon, you know, most people can kind of get behind that. Um, but you know, you take the next step and this is where, you know, like I said before that I think they're fundamentally connected infallibility, you know, for me, you know, I, I think of that word as connected with the Pope, you know, whatever the Pope says is is true. Um, and so when we, if you think that the Bible is perfect in every way, it's because God, you, know, you believe that God created it and God is perfect. Therefore the Bible is perfect. Therefore it must also be infallible that anything that it says must be true and is beyond questioning. And when you get into that, Sort of dynamic, um, that's what creates this really toxic environment that leads to oppression and marginalization of, you know every group that's not typically straight white men. Um, and so, you know, the book, as much as it is trying to tackle these big theological ideas of whether or not the Bible is perfect or infallible, um ultimately, you know, I'm trying to deal with very practical issues um, because it's not just about how we you know read and think about the Bible, but also like what we do with the Bible because I think a lot of us are so preoccupied with defending God and defending the faith and defending the Bible um, and not doing any damage to it, you know intellectually or I mean growing up physically that we don't stop to think about the damage that we do with the Bible um, to our neighbors. Because you know we found a verse that we think means you know this that and the other, and because it's in the Bible, it must be infallible and imperfect, and you know so on and so on. So for me, it's those two words are interconnected because they come down to the issue of authority, um, and it comes back to what we were talking about before, where you know or when we approach the Bible or talk about the Bible or use the Bible um, in. In a way in which we try to divorce ourselves from the act of interpretation then we're approaching it in a dishonest way um, because we cannot escape our own role um, in the interpretation of scripture any more than the biblical writers could escape their own role in the writing of scripture Um, and so you know we can hold scripture up as an authority um, in our lives we can you know hold it up as this you know revelation from god we can hold it up as this inspired text but when we do so, we have to remember the fundamental role that we play. Um, but, you know, we generally speaking as humanity and it's writing, um, but then we and it, today you and me and it's, it's reading, it's interpretation and application. And so, you know, for me, the Bible is not perfect because objectively, you know, it says things that are historically inaccurate. It has, you know, contradicting themes, um, so on and so on. But what I try to do in the book is say that's okay, and in fact, that there can be really good things that come out of that, even good news, because it says that, you know, God trusts us with the story of the people of God. God trusts us to actually be involved, to take a role, um, to take responsibility in, in telling that story, uh, and that God is challenging us as well to go deeper beyond the literal meaning of, uh, you know, literal words on the page the things that are. Um, Deeper down, they, they take work to understand. Um, and so, and, and then, like I said, book, that's not me. That's, that's origin. That's a guy, you know, writing 1600 years ago. So there's, there's a long tradition of,
0: um, of not affirming biblical inerrancy. The last kind of um, critical aspect of framing the book um, is, is somewhat of a, a confession that, that came, you know, from your own experience um, you had a Wow ninety seven Bible, uh. So, so uh, you know, a few follow questions. Do you still have it? And and what was your favorite Wow album?
1: That is an excellent question. Um, <laughs> I think that I do. I went searching for it, and um, I don't mean to brag, but my attic is not in pristine condition. Um, <laughs> so it, I think it's still in a box somewhere because I'm a bit of a hoarder. Um, and mm-hmm. and uh, I'm that guy, you know, who holds on to. Uh, cables and wires and stuff. No, I might need this one day. Um, And so I'm pretty sure it's, it's there somewhere. Um, I just, I need to keep searching for it. Um, But yeah, my favorite, honestly, it was probably 97 because I I went out of my way to buy that album and it had, there was a DC talk cover, I think on that, that I really liked. And I can't remember what it was, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested, or I'm forever linked to to that particular one, just because of that Bible and, um you know carrying it around with me forever
0: all right we're we're going to get to to biblical idolatry in a second but but I want to return to that that first quote I read when we treat the bible and god as interchangeable something else happens often without us realizing it for those of us that have deconstructed that biblical perspective and reconstructed something different help us understand what you mean by interchanging god and the bible
1: absolutely you know, I think this is where the nuance of word of God comes into play. You know, because the people of God have described the Scripture as the word of God. You know, forever. You know that that's orthodoxy, if you want to call it that. You know, it's it's tradition. You know, it's it's the way we talk. Um, you know, the problem is that we have taken the idea of little w lowercase word of god um meaning like an oracle or a revelation from god um and conflated it with capital w word of god um that we read in first john in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god you know and that's a greek concept of the logos um that is not the same you know as as idea of um you know a revelation or uh you know, an oracle from God or whatever you want to describe it. And so, you know, I, I pin a lot of the blame on this uh, on the reformation. You know, I, I think that's where you first begin to see this elevation of scripture from part of the community, you know, of God or part of the people of God, you know, standing alongside us, helping us, you know, tell our story and understand our story and proclaim good news to, this elevation you know and we see this particularly in this doctrine of like sola scriptura you know the idea that all we need is scripture um you know that was never true um i you know the delusion of that you know and i realize that's a strong word but it is kind of infuriating um you know it wasn't true you know when the scripture was written and it wasn't true when um you know luther and the you know other reformers proclaimed it and you know the evidence of that can be seen clearly in uh, the fact that you know the Protestant Reformation happened, and they immediately splintered into a dozen different traditions, you know, over things like uh, the Eucharist, for example. You know, there's this famous meeting between Luther and I'm going to screw this up, and I'm pretty sure it's Zwingli – and they're arguing over uh, what it means for Jesus to say, "This is my body." And Luther famously writes, uh, is, you know, on the table and covers it up. And every time, you know, Zwingli uh, uh, argues with him that, you know, this is about, you know, an abstract presence of Jesus, or just his his presence, you know, is there, but it's not literally his body. You know, Luther keeps arguing, no, he says is, so it must be his literal body. And you have, you know, arguments like that from the from the get-go, because they're all bringing their own interpretation of scripture, because scripture is not autonomous it doesn't you know float in isolation you know by itself interpreting and proclaiming itself you know we we are there we are the interpreters you know we are the proclaimers you know we are the one the storytellers um you know and so what happens there though is is when we put scripture on this pedestal beyond just divine revelation um, into this sort of unquestioned source of authority um, where it becomes you know effectively, You know, God incarnated in paper and ink. um, Then it becomes God incarnated paper and ink. You know, it it becomes you know God's presence you know in our lives, and we forget that it is people telling us about um, God and us reading and trying to understand God. It is not itself God, Um, but you know, between the language, you know, of Word of God. Um, And the theology that we've inherited, you know, it has become this deity in itself that is beyond questioning and critique.
0: You wrote, uh, when I say biblical idolatry, I don't mean I was bowing down before the Bible in my bedroom every night before bed, chanting and burning incense. That would be weird. And even though I was definitely a weird kid, I wasn't that weird. But I was radically, irrationally, cultishly devoted to a book. Um, let's Let's talk about the teetering scale of of worshiping the Bible and holding the Bible as a source of authority in our life. what What makes biblical idolatry, biblical idolatry?
1: I like the the teetering scale image, because I, I think that brings up an important point, like you know that this is all very much on a spectrum right because if you look at a high church tradition or like let's look at like eastern orthodox or any sort of tradition the east you know you you see them you know in catholic churches as well you know praise scripture in held aloft and you know it has this very uh, revered status both ideologically but also practically with how it's you know housed in in a cathedral or a church or or wherever um and yet, most of those people, you know, in that tradition, are not fundamentalists. You know, they're they're not literalists. They're not, um, you know, using the the Bible in the same way that folks who affirm biblical inerrancy, you know, are. And so, it, it's not this sort of black and white, you know, cut and dry uh, dichotomy between you know folks who idolize Scripture and, and folks that don't. Um, you know, for me, idolatry comes into play when we again deny. Our own role in Scripture, um, our own role in telling the story of Scripture, our own role in interpreting Scripture, our own role in applying Scripture. You know, when it becomes this, when we claim it is unquestioned, you know, authority or the highest authority, and never acknowledge it. Sorry, and n- never acknowledge, you know, our decision making in, in that process. Then, really, you know, the Bible. Itself is a physical representation of our own idolatry of ourselves, because what we've ultimately done is just put ourselves in the place of God as the great arbiter of ethics and morality and salvation. Um, you know, and I think that's what you see when folks start saying things like, "Well, the Bible is clear," you know, or "I'm just repeating the Bible," or "If you have a problem, take that up with Jesus," you know, those th- that sort of deflection where. You know, we alleviate ourselves of any responsibility and say, "Well, the Bible says, you know, this isn't me." Um, I think that is what biblical idolatry looks like when we, when we replace the the struggle and the wrestling that is demanded of trying to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus or trying to understand the unknowable, you know, which is God. When we act as if that is. A simple process as if that can just be had by quoting some bible verses then then the bible is an idol um in the sense that it is something that we covet something that we um i don't want to say devote our lives to because again that's a nuanced term because we should devote our lives in a sense to the story of the people of god but it becomes a weapon you know it becomes something that that we use for selfish ends, you know, it becomes like Baal, you know, it becomes like the Old Testament um, gods, because, you know, the people of Israel and, you know, the people in, in the ancient world, you know, turned to these gods for what they needed, you know, or what they wanted, you know, if they needed rain, or they wanted kids or the protection or curses upon their enemy, it became a, a means to an end. Um, and I think that's exactly what we do with scripture as we turn it into this means to an end, whether it's to demonize or justify or oppress or marginalize you know, or, you know, to get whatever it is that we want in life, whether that's something material or something personal or even, you know, salvation, you know, scripture is is just a means to an end. And so it becomes, you know, bail um, in our lives, not not in the way where we, you know, like the people of old are making burnt sacrifices to it or, like I said, um, you know, bowing down to it. But the way that we treat it, um, you know, in our lives is often indistinguishable from the way that You know the pagans of old that we demonize so much you know treated their gods since 2016 cbf has brought episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter these stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the united states and the world we are inviting you the listeners to join us in connecting with the podcast become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks including name recognition on the podcast
0: Transparency in many regards, is uh, the development of a new orthodoxy, uh, a new belief, um, nearly 1,600 years after the Apostle and Nicene Creed. It's it's only a 100-year-old theological concept. Um, How confident do you have to be in your innovative belief system to think you've cracked the code on what this book is and what it's supposed to be for us? That's a
1: great question, um, and I know I keep saying I have a great question, but you keep asking great questions, so I blame. Hey, you for,
0: it for hey, it's question. what I get paid the big bucks to do <laughs> when I have big time authors on this podcast. So <laughs> you keep saying it; it'll keep making me feel better.
1: Well, um, you know, to kind of bring this back to the Unraptured stuff, you know, I, I think that there uh, is a what's the word I'm looking for a not accidental overlap, you know, when those two ideas, I mean, because those two ideas are born in basically the same time, you know, you have uh, uh, John Darby who comes over, you know, in the 1870s, 80s, with his rapture theology and dispensationalism and stuff is growing during, you know, uh, during this period, late 19th, early 20th century, you've got the third great awakening with revivalism that comes in, you know, uh, with the birth of, you know, my own denomination, the the church of Nazarene. Um, But you see these, these doctrines come out of this worldview that says that there is this new pouring out of the Holy spirit, that God is, is doing, you know, something particular um, in this moment, because we are in this final dispensation before Jesus, you know, comes back. And when, when you, when you live in that mentality, then it, it affords you some, you know, some really cool opportunities because it allows you to uh, do new and exciting things because the Holy Spirit is at work opening our eyes and giving us opportunities to do exciting things, just like in the book of Acts. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, it, it, if you get too, too caught up in it, I, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but if you, if you forget the newness of it all, um and and I think that's very easy to do because, you know, we're people of tradition, we're people of story. And so if there is something new, well, if it's going to be the Holy, if it really is the Holy Spirit, we should be able to connect that to, you know, the Holy Spirit working in the past. You know, we should be able to see connections and reflections and similarities. Um, and, you know, it's not very long before you go from, oh, okay, no, th- this is how we discern and, and, and can know and name the Spirit or the work of the Spirit to, no, this is how it's been all along. Because... You know I think there's a certain insecurity, you know, when we try new things, uh, you know, and understandably so, where you know, we feel the need, and there is some, need, you know, to justify why we do what we do. and and we should, you know, in in a lot of a lot of ways. um, but there's it's very easy to go from that need, very right need to say, no, this is why we say this is the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, because it, you know we're finding new ways to love our neighbors or or whatever to no, my new idea is actually, you know, super ancient has been going along, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for forever. And so then we're back at that place before where we take, try to take ourselves out of the equation and try to deny our own, you know, biases or innovations or whatever. And that's where, you know, you get, you get problems. And so, um, you know, we deal with the book of uh, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, for example, you know, you've got books and books and books, and I read several of them, you know, dedicated to defending this um, to, well, not just defending this doctrine, but trying to prove that it is, it is ancient when in fact it's not. And so you end up with some just really, you know, weird, absurd ideas, like, um, you know, actually, you know, this, this uh, passage in um, Augustine, even though he doesn't talk about inerrancy, and even though this idea doesn't appear, you know, in Christian history, he really meant that, you know. And so you get a lot of historical revisionism going on, um, you know. And and the reality is that this idea. Uh, you know, is born in a particular context in and in in reaction to particular events, you know, that are going on. I mean, the late 19th century, you know, sees the birth of revivalism, but also sees the birth of Darwinism, you know, and evolution and scientific breakthroughs. And you see a church that is losing its, you know, place of authority um, in a lot of corners of the world and people who feel attacked, um, people who feel like they're quite, their faith is being called into question. And so they go on the defensive and say, no, you know, Luther, no, Luther, um, you know, Darwin is this agent of the devil and evolution is, you know, satanic and you know, whatever, you know, evil sort of thing. And so actually, you know, the Bible is is not just true, but it's perfect, you know. And so you see this move from the Bible as this inspired authority to this Bible that is this unquestioned perfect authority. And even though, um, but like I said before, that's not been professed by any creed or council um in anywhere in the history of the Christian church. Um, and that's how we define orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is not just, you know, things that we think are true or give us warm, fuzzy feelings. You know, orthodoxy is a particular, particular thing um, in a particular tradition. And so, um, you know, to go back And find like a a universal orthodoxy we have to go back to things like the nicene creed um, or the apostles creed when there was still something kind of like a universal church even though there was multiple traditions from the get-go um and so when we fast forward to the 20th century and we've got dozens and thousands and thousands of um denominations then the idea that that there's this universal orthodoxy becomes absurd what we have instead are, are particular orthodoxies so you know a baptist orthodoxy a methodist orthodoxy or in this case, it started off as a Presbyterian Orthodoxy. Um, what you had were you know the rise of fundamentalism in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you got folks that are trying to defend the Bible, and and the people who take the reins on this are, are the Presbyterians. Um in 1920, they gather in Atlantic City for their um, general assembly where they get together and you know profess things and fix things and do legislative works and all the things you do at a, at a church assembly and they are the first ones who um, create what are now called the five fundamentals and one of them is the belief that the Bible is is inerrant that it is perfect in every way and uh you know that is positioned um from that moment on is the historical position of the church uh, which it is not uh, there certainly are people who hold scripture in very high regards and may have even, for practical purposes, you know, thought of it as perfect before 1920, um, but that that day or that week or those weeks uh, on the boardwalk were the first time in church history where any uh, denomination or any authority, uh, authoritative body or profession of faith uh, determined that inerrancy was, was orthodoxy or at least orthodoxy for that tradition.
0: All right, so there's a tipping point uh, to inerrancy, and you know I hate to paint this in the corners. It's only the evangelical worldview, um, but it 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 has this you know kind of it permeates this idea that it is the only true biblical worldview. Um, You wrote, whether we intend to or not, we inevitably follow our own ideas about what is right. That is what it means to practice personal judgment. The problem arises when we deny the role of our own judgment plays in the development of our faith, sanctifying our ideas as unfiltered word of God, and force others to live the sorts of lives we believe they should. Take us a little deeper there into um, kind of how that particular perspective of the biblical worldview is taking shape in our world today
1: absolutely um you you come to nashville and see it play out uh last night or earlier this week at the franklin city commission meeting um where they were having a big battle over whether or not the pride festival um, would be granted a permit um that they've been granted in the past with without any problems but um thankfully the permit went through but you know, you have a lot of folks, um, like one in particular, Victoria Jackson, who oddly enough is a former Saturday Night Live cast member, um, who got behind the podium and, you know, ranted and raved about, you know, that, you know, God hates homosexuality and it's abomination, you know, all this, this sort of typical um, kind of thing, and, you know, she's relying, you know, on the Bible, you know, to do that. And she's saying, well, essentially saying, you know, what we talked about before that, well, the Bible is clear, you know, and the Bible, you know, it's obvious and, and trying to separate, you know, herself from the equation. And so when people get up there and, or, you know, at church behind the pulpit or on Facebook or whatever, uh, you know, and demonize you know, homosexuality or Muslims or, you know, whatever, you know, proof text you have for whatever particular, you know, group that you don't like, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, the Bible is clear here. It's, you know, Paul says, you know, blah, 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 blah. blah, um, And and it's true, you know, those verses are certainly in the Bible, but, you know, what do you do with, with Jesus who says, you know, when the the teachers of the law come to him and ask him point blank, well, what's the most important law? And he says, love the lord your god you know um, and your neighbor as yourself and then says everything hangs on these two commandments so what he's saying is that everything else that you read in the bible or in scripture the bible you know wouldn't have existed um, back then but everything that you read in scripture has to be interpreted and understood through this dual command to love or as augustine would put it you know several centuries later no matter, you know, how great your exegesis is or grammatical work or how clear, you know, you think this Bible verse is, if it doesn't lead you to love God and love your neighbor better, then you're wrong. Right. And like those, those are not like, you cannot have love and hate standing side by side, you know, like you, you have to pick a side. Right. And so to do that, you have to practice personal judgment. And so it comes back to, you know, again, this this issue of not acknowledging, you know, our own role um, in this interpretive process. And, you know, the, the point in doing that is it's humility, you know? I mean, one of the the earliest, you know, hymns in the church, maybe the earliest hymn in the church is is found in Philippians 2, you know, where Paul talks about you know, Jesus being equal with God, but not thinking, you know, that divinity is something that should be snatched at. It's this really cool image that echoes you know adam and eve in the garden snatching at, you know divinity with the with the apple you know in the tree of life or um whatever fruit it was and so you know what what the church is saying from the beginning is that you know we are not god you know that even jesus um who was god you know was not trying to uh snatch at that sort of you know authority and and position himself in that kind of way um and yet that's exactly what we do with the bible when we treat it um and ourselves as this un you know uh, unfiltered uh, vessel through which you know God uh, wields his wrath and judgment and and whatever because here's a Bible verse. Um, I think I got way off on a tangent there. <laughs> and, and what was the original question? I'm sorry, we'll have to edit this part out because I was rambling.
0: No, no edits because it was so masterfully uh, answered, um, to, to say the least. Um, so <laughs> thinking through kind of like. You know, it, it all wraps around biblical narrative and infallibility. Um, it's not just this subtle belief system, but it's the foundation of this biblical worldview, and it 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 permeates beyond just a personal belief system and into the way that people in, interact with the world. And you gave some some great tangible examples of things that are that are happening right now. Um, well, is that
1: because uh, you know what what inevitably you're doing is you're not saying the Bible or you're not just saying that the Bible is inerrant. You're saying I am inerrant because I have an inerrant Bible. I have this perfect, you know, uh, book of morality or book of, you know, however, you know, you position it in your mind, but ultimately, and and that's where the idolatry comes in because we're not just, like we said, we're not bowing down to a book, but like we're positioning ourselves as God of our lives. Now we've convinced ourselves that we not we've convinced ourselves. No, this is just, you know, me quoting God, um, but really, when we take ourselves again out of that equation, um, we also take we really take God out of the equation because we substitute ourselves for God. And so it's not just the Bible who's inerrant, but we are inerrant. And so when we are inerrant, we can go stand behind a podium and scream passionately and righteously that everybody else is going to hell because they don't live like us.
0: Yeah, rightness is also the idol there, too. Um i want to return to a a quote i read earlier um because the bible doesn't exist on its own and because it was written by people in a culture and time far removed from our own it requires interpretation why do you think people settle for a personal interpretation of scriptures versus a full contextual understanding
1: because it's easy um you know we like bonhoeffer said you know i think we're addicted to cheap grace um you know we we've commodified salvation you know we've turned it into an industrial you know factory uh process where you know you come down to an altar or you say a prayer and you know you say the magic words and then you're saved forever and you go to heaven um and we've reduced Christianity to a zero-sum game game where that's all that matters, you know, like, we don't put in the work to understand scripture because we don't need to, because, again, thank you, Martin Luther, sola fide, you know, we're saved by faith alone, and what that has come to mean, even though Luther, to be fair, didn't, you know, articulate it quite this way, um, what that has come to mean in the, you know, 500 years since is that I am saved by right belief alone, right, and whether that right belief is acknowledging Jesus is Lord and savior, um, or that right belief is that, and, you know, affirming orthodox doctrines or whatever, um, you know, we've come to believe that, you know, right. Our, the, the Christian faith is just about right ideas. And so it's about who has the right ideas and, um, whoever has the right ideas has the most power. And then we can wield that power. And again, that's what you see, um, playing out in all these, you know, horrid Christian nationalist, you know, debates and, uh, fake boycotts and you know fake persecution you know and and all that kind of stuff um but but when when faith is divorced from action you know the faith isn't just dead but that you know action becomes pointless um because if it what and what I mean by that is if we're saved by right ideas then right life doesn't matter um and and the irony is that Jesus had a very different approach to that i mean there's there's one place in the entire bible um or the entire gospels where jesus lays out exactly how things will play out on judgment day and to borrow as i do so often from tony campolo you know jesus isn't staying there with a list of doctrines saying you know, did you believe in the virgin mary you know do you affirm the trinity do you believe you know what was the right atonement theory you know, it's I was hungry, did you feed me? I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? You know, and that stuff is is hard. You know, it's hard to figure out how to do that and to do it well. You know, it's easy to say love your neighbor. It's a lot harder to actually love your neighbor. You know, it's hard to figure out how to do those things in real life. Those things take work and effort, but we prefer cheap grace, you know, we prefer magic words and an altar because ultimately, you know, our Christian faith is really just about us. you know, it's about my salvation. It's about my soul, about my eternal life. And so what I you know, I hope to get, I hope folks get out of, you know, God breathe um, is you know both permission, like I said before, to ask questions and to wrestle with scripture, but I hope they feel challenged to step back and just ask basic fundamental questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. you know, what is salvation? you know what why am I a Christian? Why does you know any of this this matter? Um, and so you know i hope it's it's a jumping off point for some really uh, basic questions that i don't think a lot of us take the time take the time you know to answer especially like i said before if we grew up in the church and you know we've told ourselves you know many many years ago that we already kind of figured this out because again we've been conditioned to believe that this is just an intellectual game where if
0: we believe the right things we win You know, you wrote a pretty powerful quote, the, the spiritual richness, richness of the Bible um, are there to be mined by whoever would seek them. It takes effort, though, to find treasure hidden in a field. They're not just lying on top of the dirt, waiting for any poor sap to stumble by, put it in their pocket, and amble away home. An idiot would listen to this podcast or read book reviews of your of your book and think that you're actually inviting people to discard their Bibles. You're actually calling them to quite the opposite. You're calling people out of a shallow foundation of the biblical illiteracy and into something more. Uh, tell us about that something more you're calling people to.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I like that. I mean, I like that description because that's exactly, you know, what I'm trying to do. I, a lot of this idea um, for this book came, you know, originally from a, a class in graduate school when we were reading when I was reading origin, um, one of the early church fathers for the first time. And, you know, he was the first one to say that scripture, the firm for me to read, at least that scripture isn't perfect and, and that that's okay. You know, he talks about, uh, God allowing what he calls stumbling blocks, you know, in scripture to draw us beyond the literal word on the page and down into a, a deeper spiritual truth. And, you know, for, on one hand, that, I find that incredibly liberating, you know, that there's there's a freedom there to, to ask questions and push back, but also to be honest, you know, when we come to verses like slaves obey your masters for his right in the Lord, and, you know, growing up, I, I felt handcuffed, you know, to that passage, or passages like that, rather, you know, and, and felt the need to do all sorts of mental gymnastics to either justify or rationalize or explain away, when if that passage or those words appeared anywhere else. You know, in life, I would just be like, no, that's morally reprehensible. Um, you know, and someone like Origen allows us the freedom to say, to say that, to say, no, this Paul was wrong. Um, but to do that while maintaining this challenge to go deeper into scripture, because he's not saying, Oh, well, you know, people shouldn't, you know, our slaves slavery is bad, so we can just ignore the Bible. He's saying, Well, let's let's take this as a challenge because that's what God's doing. Um, and, and to go deeper. I, I like Paul's image of, you know, seeing through a mirror dimly, you know, growing up, I always thought that, oh, well, you know, we just don't understand some passages. And, you know, what he's saying is it's just kind of hazy, you know, like a a dim mirror, but like mirrors, you know, aren't windows, you know, mirrors reflect back on us. And so what I see origin challenging us to do, and what I'm, you know, hoping God breathe challenges people to do as well, is to look at a passage like that and say, well, why is it here? because reality is is it's in the bible you know we can't avoid passages like that or women be silent in the church or take your kids outside camp and stone them to death if they've been you know bratty they're there they're part of our story i i find some odd beauty in that not in those commands but in the fact that they're there that the people of god don't try to hide our dirty laundry that as much as we're we're so concerned today about branding and appearances and you know looking like the perfect church or the perfect pastor or the perfect christians um the bible is like no man we're we're hypocrites and we're liars and we're murderers and we're thieves and we are saved by the grace of jesus and to me like that's the beauty of the gospel that's the beauty of the story of god but it's it, it leaves us with these questions of well, what do we do with those passages. Well, for me, and I think what Origin is getting to is, if I come to one of those passages like "slaves obey your masters," um, if if that is a stumbling block, then it has to push me deeper. and And that's what I'm trying to get at with the book, just like Origin did. Is it's not a a, a get out of jail free card where you can just ignore the Bible and toss it away, but it's a challenge to go deeper. And in this case, I look at it and say, well, what could possibly be good about this passage, period, in Scripture, because it's done so much catastrophic damage. Because in the you know, 19th century and um, going back, you know, centuries before that, that passages, passages like that were used to justify slavery, you know, in the name of God. Well, for me, if I look at that passage and say, well, I can't interpret that literally because if I do, it leads me to not love my neighbor because slavery is not loving. Um, but if I look at it and say, you know, what if I am seeing through a mirror dimly, what what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and if scripture is not, is, trying to hide the imperfections of of the biblical writers and the people of God and what what could that mean and when I start putting those pieces together I, I see I see in Paul a person like myself I see someone who is imperfect who's trying to understand who is trying to you know work with whatever available information he has at the time um, and someone who's just screws up sometimes you know and I and those those mistakes can have, Catastrophic consequences. Um, but if we're honest about them, if we're honest about Paul, for example, again, being a human being and getting things wrong, that opens up a lot of healing possibilities, a lot of freeing possibilities. If we can say, if we can begin to look at scripture and say, you know what, we're not going to be shackled to this literalism anymore because scripture invites us to acknowledge our own imperfections, our own limitations, and our own role in this. And scripture acknowledges that sometimes we're just not going to get it right. And if we can embrace that actual biblical worldview, that idea that, you know what, we're going to screw up sometimes and we need to be open and honest about it, then that can completely change the trajectory um, of of our story, Um, particularly today when we try to Keep up perf- uh, appearances of perfection, and we claim to understand everything, and we claim to have, you know, all the right answers. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, ch- I think with Origin and others, and you know, myself, not that we're, I'm mean, obviously Origin and I are basically indistinguishable in the in the life of church history. Um, <laughs> but no, but like what what he's saying and what you know I'm trying to say is that the people of god aren't perfect and if we're going to learn to love our neighbors that's a pretty good place to start is in acknowledging our own imperfections our own flaws and our own tendencies to put words and actions in the name of god because that happens over and over and over again um in the bible i mean the book of judges is basically dedicated to it i mean it it Almost begins and ends with the same idea. There was no king in Israel, and the people of God did whatever was right in their own eyes. And I mean, if that's not the story of the people of God, then I don't know what it is or what
0: is. Well, we just got our our title for this episode. Uh, Zach Hunt, the origin of this generation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you you issue a, a challenge and lay the foundation for. The idea that we cannot believe the Bible to be God-breathed if it doesn't lead us to love our God-breathed neighbor just as God first loved us. Take us a little deeper there.
1: Right. I mean, the, the most fundamental thing, you know, that we can say about God is God is love, right? Like that's when we say God is love, we're describing the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, Spirit, and loving communion. You know, when we we talk about jesus you know the confession of the church historically has always been that this what we see in in jesus is god fully revealed right like that this this is who god is is can be seen in this person from nazareth um and what we confess you know in our creation story is that god creates out of love but we're saying all along whether it's jesus or creation or you know Trinitarian theology. um is that who God is fundamentally is this loving being in communion. There's nothing behind that. There's not like Trinity love. Like these are not just descriptions of God. Like if I said, oh, you know, Andy has a beard, you know, or brown hair, like those are descriptions of you, but there's more to you, you know, further back or further down. Like there's not anything further down the rabbit hole. God is love. And so if God is love and God creates out of love that God is breathing love in, you know, uh breathing life into existence through love, whether that's breathing life into dirt or breathing life by breathing through um, you know, a walls of water so that people can go free, or breathing life into old bones, you know, in front of a prophet, or breathing life into a, a dead carpenter, you know, uh, on Sunday or Easter morning. Like this action is is an act of love. And so if if we believe that God breathes scripture into existence in whatever way we do that, then what we're professing is that God is finding another avenue to breathe love into the world because life is grounded in love because life is grounded in God who is love. And so just like Jesus said that everything has hangs on these commandments, love our neighbor. And just like Augustine said that, you know, our end point has to be loving our neighbor. Um, we can't, talk about God-breathed scripture, or we can't claim that scripture is inspired by God, that it is infilled with the spirit, if we are not being led to love our neighbor, because that's why the spirit exists, to infill us, to inspire us with this spirit of love, so that we go and do likewise, so that we go and breathe this life, this love, you know, into the world around us. So, if we are using the Bible to harm as a, if we're using the Bible as a weapon of death and destruction to damn our enemies to hell or to marginalize them, you know, in everyday life, we're breathing out death and destruction and we're not breathing out love. And so what we're doing cannot be called God breathed. If God is love and what we do is the opposite of that.
0: Lastly, you know, how is your understanding of God-breathed, what, what you've conveyed here in this book, uh, given shape and formation to your own faith journey? Can
1: you say that one more time?
0: How is the, you know, in a sense, how is the message you're conveying in this book, this nuanced understanding of what it means to be God-breathed within the scriptures, um, how has that given shape to your personal faith journey? I think for me
1: and this is kind of circling back to your original questions about like unrapture and things the fundamental connection really between those two books beyond you know big ideas about theology is me coming to terms for me being able to admit that i was wrong um i think there are few things in the life of the church that are more prohibited, um, more shunned, more terrifying than admitting that we're wrong about things that we were convinced we were right about, particularly things that are of immense central uh, foundational importance. I mean, when's the last time, you know, you heard a sermon where a pastor got up and was like, guys, I, I thought I knew this, but what I told you was wrong. You know, when's the last time you, you know, uh, heard a talking head or a big book or, or whatever in the Christian tradition, people get up and say, you know, I, I was wrong. You know, we, we again have, have so um, reduced the Christian faith into this profession of just right ideas that there's no more space for wrestling with God like Jacob did, but Wrestling with ideas, wrestling what it means to be a follower of Jesus—not just in an abstract way, but in our you know particular individual everyday context—and so well, there's no space for admitting you're wrong when eternity itself rests on being right. And so for me, the, you know, what I've tried, to, what I've tried to accomplish, you know, or or you know, in the pages of Unraptured and now and you know, God Breathed is is kind of my own act of penance um, of Acknowledging that, you know, I used to be so, so confident that Jesus, you know, that the rapture was about to happen or that the Bible was perfect or or whatever. Because of these things that I'm writing about, you know, that's not other people. I mean, this is my story. I grew up in a conservative evangelical world and, you know, grew up basically fundamentalist and convinced that I had all the right ideas and everyone else who disagreed you know, wasn't just wrong, but they were damned to hell and probably an agent of Satan, you know, trying to trick me or, you know, my family into believing their, you know, terrible ideas. So for me, the idea of God breathe has been a personal challenge, because, you know, if inspiration of scripture doesn't mean dictation, um, if there is a fundamental role of people that is play or that people play a fundamental role in the writing and reading and application of scripture, um, then And some of us are going to get it wrong, you know, and when we don't acknowledge that role and we don't acknowledge our own ability to, to be wrong, um, then it becomes really easy to tie people to wooden stakes and set them on fire. And, and I would like to see that not happen again. You know, I mean, we, we don't do that metaphorically, I mean, literally anymore, but we sure do, um, have a gift for finding ways to oppress and marginalize people, um, in the name of, of God and and in the Bible, Um, because we're so afraid of the possibility um not just that we could be wrong, but that we won't get to heaven. and so for me it's 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 been a personal challenge of and really that's what I'm doing in both books is me working out my own salvation as as Paul might say um but it's me working out, you know what it means to live in that world of of not having all the right answers because that's scary um you know, but but that's where I find myself and and I think it's a—it's led me to a healthier relationship with scripture um, because contrary to what, you know, inevitable reviews or, uh, you know, comments on social media will say this new orientation for me with scripture, with this new relationship has driven me to I want to understand it more. You know, it's opened up new avenues of inquiry and caused me to ask new questions and helped me fall in love with the Bible you know all over again because i don't feel shackled to all of this dogma that i have to affirm and i have to do gymnastics you know mental gymnastics to to justify or to explain away or, or whatever you know for me being able to read the bible in a free way where i can just let it speak and then i can just think and ask questions and then bounce those questions off other people instead of just being afraid you know that if I say or believe the wrong thing, that I'll go straight to hell is has been liberating. And so for me, God breathed has been both an act of humility, of learning to be okay with acknowledging that I I can be wrong and not having to have all the answers and then an act of, you know of freedom of being able to see a text that I thought I knew so well in, in ways that that I never could before um, because I was so blinded, so shackled, so in love with 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 dogma.
0: Our guest is the Honorable Zach Hunt. The book is God Breathe. If you want to stay connected with Zach, check out zachhunt.net. Zach, it's always, uh, it makes my day. Nay, it, it makes my year to <laughs> have you on the, on the podcast. Thank you for, for challenging us to see that we cannot believe the Bible to be God-breathed if it doesn't lead us to love our God-breed neighbor just as God first loved us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.